I can do this. It's only one meeting. I can be a female for one meeting. Can I? Not if you're lumbering. I'll conduct the meeting sitting down. Tighten your bottom. Well, I think you're doing wonderfully, my dear. I'm proud of you. I'm sorry. You know, you may walk like a man, but you make a very attractive female. Confusing, isn't it? <laughs> Babble Cycle Babble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and acting Grand Nagus. Acting Grand Nagus. Acting Grand Nagus. I'm Elizabeth. I am a Dabo girl and student of humanoid psychology. <laughs> Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I begin a discussion on trans allegories in Star Trek. We should say up front that we realize this may be a sensitive topic for some listeners. At time of recording, it's 2022, and the struggle for trans rights is very much in the forefront of the so-called culture war. Elizabeth and I don't want to be ambiguous about our views, but we also don't want to get sidetracked in our discussion. As it is, we are limiting ourselves to three episodes on the topic for the moment, even though we could spend several more on the subject. At any rate, trans rights are human rights, queer people aren't grooming your kids, and if any of that makes you uncomfortable, you may want to skip this week's show. We are going to begin with a discussion of trans allegories in Trek that haven't held up so well, beginning with DS9's Prophet in Lace from its sixth season, it aired in 1996, was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler, and directed by Alexander Zittig. After telling one of his employees that she has to perform sexual favors in order to keep her job, Quark learns from his brother Ram that their homeworld of Ferenginar is experiencing a communications blackout. Grand Nagus Zek, his valet, and his enamorata Ishka, who happens to be Quark's and Ram's mother, eventually arrive at DS9 and explain that a series of social reforms instituted by Zek under Ishka's advisement have led to a coup. The reforms have granted Ferengi women, uh, females, equal rights, in essence, and Zek has been deposed as a result. Recurring antagonist Brunt has also been promoted to acting Nagus. The plan to resolve this crisis is to convince an influential Ferengi businessman, Milva, that having females participate in the economy is good for everyone. Ishka is supposed to do the convincing, but she has a heated argument with Quark that ends with a heart attack, leaving her indisposed. The only solution, apparently, is to give Quark gender reassignment surgery. He poses as a female called Lumba, and after a series of antics and a little more sexual harassment, convinces Nilva to support Zek's reforms. So, I gotta tell you, Elizabeth, I don't really know where to start with this one. Like, it is such a mess. It is so awful. It is a, it is a fiery pile of garbage <laughs> is what it is. Uh, like, there's so, there's so much there. Uh, my apologies to Alexander Siddig. Um, it's not his fault. It's just, yeah. it's a 
You know, I, it is. I, I think this is the only episode he got to direct, unfortunately, which is like such really? a shame. Yeah. <laughs> he should get a do over. Yeah, that, that happened. Like, the only episode of TNG that Gates McFadden got to direct was, uh, what was it called? Genesis. And also pretty terrible. And it's just like, <laughs> it's like they gave him a terrible script and then it failed. And they're like, okay, well, that, we're done. It's like what reminds me about, um, I think, Saturday Night Live, sometimes when they're just like running out of time to come up with new ideas, they're just like, polish the turd. Like, that's the best <laughs> you can do in this situation. Yeah. Before we even get to the elephant in the room and the terrible, terrible uh, message that this sends about trans issues, there's a number of other things that are worse, <laughs> equally bad, if not worse, in terms of the messaging here. And it's hard to say where this went wrong. So first of all, the word feminist shows up in the script. Um, uh, Quark and uh, I think Brunt refer to Ishka as a feminist. And you're the one pulling the strings, making him dance to your evil feminist tune. And it's like, okay, on paper, I guess there's some feminism built into the idea of, okay, we're, we're trying to push Ferengi society forward, grant females uh, equal rights, and develop a more egalitarian society. And that's that's good, obviously, but in the process of the way they put this together, it's like they complete they send the opposite message of what they're trying to say. <laughs> because yeah. right? it's like, okay, the only way to get uh, them to take female Ferengi seriously is to give a male gender reassignment. <laughs> it's, yeah, so a male pretending to be a female is the only way to convince another male that women are as smart as men. Yeah. Like that that's that's your plot that like that's your plan to make this work? Okay. I mean, I think I think the episode in its own way is trying to show things that are problematic. You know, like the the whole situation with um the Dabo girl at the beginning. Yeah, Laura. Can't you see the pain in my eyes? I don't think they displayed or they had that scene as an example of like acceptable behavior, but it, it, there's such a weird mixture of things that they're trying to demonstrate as problematic and then things that they are putting forward as solutions that are also problematic. Yeah. So it's just, it's a lot going on. It's clear what they're trying to do. They're trying to show, okay, Quark is a sexist and he's a harasser. That's bad. Of course, although this is the first time we've seen it behave this way in the whole series, but whatever. Um, so that then later when he's Lumba and they, uh, the Slogo Cola guy is harassing him, oh, I get it now. I understand why this is bad. Like, that's, I think, the idea of putting that in there. But then at yeah. the end of the episode, it's like once Quark's hormones go away, which, wow, um, <laughs> suddenly he's back to... Like, oh no, I want Umox. And yeah, that, that whole thing is its own mess. Yeah, like how quick how quickly he reverted back. Like he, he started with like, oh no, this is wrong and I apologize. And then he was like, what am I saying? Wait. Yeah, comedy. What am I saying? Alora, wait. Yeah, on top of that, right? So their feminist message kind of falls over, doesn't make any sense, and it insults itself. And then their message about like harassment it's like, okay, so he's harassing this Davo girl. And then it, then she reads this book, this like uh, 
manosphere book. Unlocks for fun and profit? It's a quick read. And at the end of the episode, she's like, no, I really wanted to give Umox. It sounded like fun. Which is, to be clear, it's fine if she wants to do that. That's her yeah. choice. But it's the way it's framed, it it's like, well, well who's who learned the lesson here? She learned the lesson? I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a little problematic to be like, oh, well, women will like it once they try it or once they know, you know, it's just like it's like no that's not if that if that's your kink power to you I, right. I hope you have all the fun in the world um but that's not I, I think that's a dangerous precedent you know to put out there that like oh you know maybe women want that kind of attention you know like they'll actually like it and then i'm just like mm, no no like yeah yeah it's guess that it's just it's like tripping over itself one thing i think is less bad in terms of delving into is a relationship between Quark and Ishka. Um, you know, they've had a fraught relationship throughout the series. This is in season six. Um, so it's been building to this point. And I do think there's something real in terms of th this can happen with um, parents or family members who are also activists in that they have, mm -hmm. they, they put a lot of energy into their political activism. Um, sometimes at the expense of their families. I think that's a, a real thing that happens. So yeah. on some level, I do think there's something worth getting into there in terms of the way Quark feels about his mother and she about him. Yeah, um, that scene, I think, reminds me of so many you know, arguments that I've had with my parents, you know, I think there's the quintessential like butting heads between adult children and their parents. And... I think from like our modern standpoint, it's really easy for us to paint Quark as the bad guy in this situation. Like he caused his mother to have a heart attack. Um, he's complaining that she's ruined his life and like their entire civilization by campaigning for equal rights for females. And and I think that's really easy for us to say like, oh, he's wrong. And like the arc of the episode is him learning why and how he's wrong. Um, but I do think there's also that, you know, like, Ishka is not really listening to what Quark is saying, and she's being really defensive, and she's, and people are allowed to be defensive, but it, it's this sense of, I'm right and you're wrong, and there's no compromise from either side of them. You've ruined Zek's life, your life, Rom's life. As if you cared about any of us, it's your life you're worried about. You bet I'm worried. Nobody else seems to care what happens to me. You come here to my station, take over my quarters, make me a part of your subversive schemes. What's the matter, Quark? Are you afraid you picked the wrong side? You can always go crawling to Brunt, beg his forgiveness. I don't want anything to do with Brunt. I want my own Nagus back! Do you? I do like that there can be some sympathy for both Ishka and for Quark in the, in that situation. You know, like they're both they're both not wrong, even though they're both not right either. Yeah, it would have been better in my opinion if the episode had had some acknowledgement from ishka that it's like the only reason she's she and quark make up at the end of the episode is because he's now better in terms of his views on women i guess although that's yeah. not really established as we said 
but it's like, oh, you're aligning with my politics, therefore we're okay now. Mm-hmm. As opposed to her saying, you know, I still believe in what I believe in, and I think you're wrong, but I empathize with what you're saying to me, and I understand how the way I have been could have been hurtful to you. Something like that for Mishka would have been better, and I feel like the episode was trying to go there, was signaling that it was going to go there, but it never really did. But I do think it's something we can take from it in terms of, you know, when we get passionate about things that we believe in, um, sometimes we leave relationships and other people in our wake <laughs> of that activism and that uh, that passion. I mean, I think that's what all of us want from the people we interact with, from our parents. We just want to feel understood and acknowledged. And when that doesn't happen, yeah. it, it there's how can you meet each other, even like to disagree ultimately, versus just like fighting it out until one of you dominates. Yeah. With that said, I think we can't put it off any longer. We need to talk about the gender reassignment. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh boy, uh, let's start with all the terrible things about it in this episode. Um, one. Uh, it happens off screen, like in a cut, and it's just sort of implied that Quark went to Dr. Bashir and said, I'd like to be a woman now, which is is fine, obviously, like ethically, but in the real world, you don't just drop at the drop of a hat decide to do something like that. You... Mm-hmm have been talking to, usually they require you to talk to a therapist. At the very least, you've been thinking about it for some time. Yeah. Um, I guess in Star Trek, it's so easy to do that they just go back and forth, I guess. Uh, but it's there's just no sense from Bashir that he was like, oh, why, why do you want to transition? Oh, to, to, to trick somebody into... <laughs> In this, yeah. in this wacky scheme that we have. What are the moral and ethical quandaries, you know, about around this decision? To play devil's advocate, at least in the Star Trek universe, you know, like, they become other species and races, like, relatively easily as well. So in that way, I think there's some kind of canonical justification for being able to switch genders. Um, because people will pretend to be other alien, other alien races to, like, infiltrate and do that, too. Um, but no, I do, I do hear the real world problematic implications of that. Well, that's one of the, the horrible things that transphobes uh, have always accused trans people of doing is that their identity is actually a way of tricking people, right? It's a really ugly um, precedent that unfortunately this episode leans into heavily. It's like, yeah, people aren't the gender that they say they are, they're just pretending his name's not lumber it's quark and he's a male is this true you're a man do i look like a man i I never quite understand what the fear is on that side like what exactly they're worried is going to happen if 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 in fact people did this which they don't but if people actually pretended to be transgender in order to fool people what would they possibly accomplish with that it's like (laughs) Anyway, then we get into what what happens to Quark uh, after the surgery, which is, I guess, he's now producing the Ferengi equivalent of estrogen or other hormones that make him feminized. 
which mm-hmm. is a thing that trans people do. The taking of hormones is one of the first steps in physical transitioning. Um, and that does affect your behavior and your appearance, obviously. But the implication of the episode is that now that he's got woman brain, he can't do math and he's distracted by his own appearance and worried about and falling apart and so emotional. And it's like, for an ostensibly feminist episode, this is like 1940s level cringe. You see, brother, you look lovely. Oh! There go his hormones. You mean her hormones? Hippocat cream for smooth skin and healthier profits. All these facts and figures. They're too much for me to remember. Yeah, so especially this idea about women being hormonal and therefore emotionally unpredictable and unstable is complete BS. If you go to a scientist who studies, you know, sexuality and biology and human anatomy and all that, if you give them the age of a woman and where she is in her menstrual cycle, they can actually really accurately predict what her hormone levels are going to be at that time. With a man, it is completely off the chart. Like, you, there's no way to predict what the male physiology is going to be depending on like their age and other factors. So biologically, women are actually hormonally much more stable than men. And so like the science completely refutes that stereotype and yet it's still there. I yeah, I've always maintained that men are actually generally speaking the much more emotionally volatile of the uh, of the genders. And that the idea that women are more volatile because of their hormones or whatever is complete projection. (laughs) It's a way of denying reality. Because the emotional expressions that are typically associated with masculinity tend to be aggressive and, um, you know, violent, I guess, more than the, like, the stereotypes about women, which are just, like, sad and demure or whatever... Uh, because of that, we were conditioned not to look at that as being emotional. It's like being emotional is crying at a, at a sad movie, not yeah. punching a wall because you're upset. And it's like, no, they're, they're both emotional. And if you look at the whole spectrum of emotions, even within the stereotypes that we might confine ourselves to, men are way more emotional in terms yeah. of their are emotionally unstable, I should say. But before we go on, can I just say I'm so proud of you for using pr- the term projection correctly. I'm just like, oh, good job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning. Um, <laughs> so this, um, yeah, this 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 depiction of Lumba is is horrible and um, insulting to like multiple different groups at once: yeah. to trans people, to women, to men. To, um, to all to, people. To, to all people. All, it, it's bad for everybody. Good, good job, Star Trek. Um, and then, oh God, and then the thing with the walk, where it's like they're trying to get him to walk like a lady, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's a Tootsie thing that they're going for. It was certainly funnier in that movie than it was here. Here I was just sort of like cringing. So in, in terms of we'll call it classic Trek, meaning um, before the reboot series. This is the only example that I can think of of an on-screen depiction of gender transition 
Um, and it's so bad (laughs) that it's kind of, honestly, it's kind of a stain on the legacy of Star Trek, which has this reputation deserved in most cases, I think for being progressive and forward thinking and tolerant and inclusive. And yet their one depiction of an actual gender transition, um, is, is, is so awful that it kind of, I don't know, it, it feels incredibly hypocritical. And that's, and that's sad. From Voyager's final season, we move on to Body and Soul, written by Michael Taylor, directed by Robert Duncan McNeil, and airing in 2000. While on an away mission, the Doctor, Seven of Nine, and Harry Kim are attacked and captured by a species which prohibits holographic life forms. In order to save the Doctor from being decompiled, Seven allows him to download himself into her cybernetic matrix. This has the effect of putting the Doctor in control of Seven's body. The Doctor can't help but indulge himself in sensual experiences of having a body, but it turns out that despite his being in control, Seven is fully aware of her actions and suffers all the consequences of his choices. They have to maintain the subterfuge in order to attempt escape, which lands the Doctor and Seven in an alien love triangle. Despite the friction, the pair are able to contact Voyager and engineer a rescue. So. Of the episodes we're talking about this week, I, I do think this is the least bad. Yeah, agreed. Um, it's the, the not only the least offensive, but just the best um, put together story. Um, it's not great still, still a lot of cringe, but it has more redeeming qualities, I think. Uh, there's kind of a Shakespearean vibe with the sort of mistaken identity and the love triangle stuff. and Yeah, very Twelfth Night, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, but that said, there's still a lot of, a lot of bad. <laughs> Probably the most egregious is is the issue of consent. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, the, the consent I think is a big overt issue uh, in the in the episode, uh, especially because the doctor is just you know, Seven says you were abusing my body, and he kind of was. You know. You've had quite a shock to your system. Let me explain what's happened. I know exactly what's happened. You've been abusing my body. I'm a doctor. Shh. I would never abuse your body. I was trying to get information. Sometimes a a glass of wine can loosen the tongue. One glass. That doesn't excuse the other eight. Was it that many? (laughs) Seven, you were aware of everything? Painfully. Yeah, and it's, it's a subtle thing because I don't think if the doctor had known that Seven was aware of what was happening, I think he would have made different choices uh, in her body. Like, I don't think he would have been as blatant about it. Um, It was the fact that he thought she was just, like, asleep, essentially, right? Yeah. Like, just totally not aware of what was happening. Oh, it doesn't matter, it's fine, was his reasoning. And that's shitty, (laughs) right? Because in terms of consent, it's like, oh, if you don't know any better, then... I can get away with it mm-hmm. is is the implication of that. And the fact that the doctor's a medical program and that's where he went, oh, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like you you deal with people in their most vulnerable condition all the time, right? Performing surgery and pediatric care and really confidential issues. And this is how, yeah. 
just to play devil's advocate, I do think part of the show was also, like, that was the first time the Doctor got to experience physical sensation. And so maybe he didn't realize that, in, in this literal instance, that eating all that heavy junk food was going to be bad for Seven. Like, he might not have realized that if you eat an entire cake, you're going to get a stomach ache. Um, and that he was experiencing these things for the very first time. And, and so I do think there's this kind of, like, childlike naivete that is kind of fueling his actions and decisions up until he realizes that Seven is aware of what's going on. And then he does try to hone it in. If you just look at what's happening on the surface of the show, it's a little bit more understandable for me. But the, the deeper issues of consent and whether or not someone is can consciously and enthusiastically consent to what is happening and the right of somebody to do something because it feels good to them, you know, regardless of, uh, of the consequences for the other person, like all that is problematic and is underneath this otherwise kind of like, haha, kind of, you know, like, um, situation that's actually happening in the show. I, I do like the message in the end where Seven learns to be a little bit less efficient in terms of her experiences. I think that's good. It's come to my attention that nutritional supplements don't fully meet my needs. I see. I thought we could share this experience. I'll describe the meal to you the tastes, the sensations. Perhaps you can enjoy it vicariously. But again, in terms of it being problematic, like, <laughs> oh, you didn't consent to this and you did it, but it's okay, like, as you say, Elizabeth, it's okay because you're gonna like it. And it turns out, like, maybe she will like it a little bit, but that doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you don't force people to, to experience those things just because you think it's better for them mm -hmm. or that they might not hate it. That's something... I think most people like learn and relearn on in a on a very constant basis is that you have to let other people decide what is right for them and what they want. And even though you might have an idea about what is better for somebody, it ultimate like that's not ultimately your choice. And you also might be wrong. You know, um, like the, you know what you would do can be very different than what somebody else would do or want or value. And that doesn't make them wrong. You know, and, and so like learning, yeah. learning to give everybody their own sovereignty and autonomy is, I think, a lifelong um, learning. Let's talk about the way gender um, manifests itself in the story, because it's 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 different, um, certainly than uh, Prophet and Lace, mm -hmm. and is, I think, a little bit more sophisticated. I still think it's not ideal in terms of the binary mm -hmm. that is set up between men and women in terms of um, the way these aliens interact with Seven slash the Doctor, depending on who they think they're talking to. Um, but at the very least, they're playing with the fluidity a little bit more. Uh, specifically, what I mean is um, the Doctor, when he's trying, you know, in Seven's body uh, and trying to convincingly be, be seven, whoever that person might be for these aliens who have never met her, he doesn't um, change the way he acts or walks or 
yeah. presents himself. He's just himself, but in Jerry Ryan's body. And that reads to the aliens as as female, right? They don't, yeah. it doesn't seem weird to them, right? Uh, yeah, totally. It, it's not like in the first episode where the Ferengis were telling Quark, you have to walk, you can't walk that, that way, you're lumbering. You have to learn how to walk in a more feminine way. Uh, whereas, you know, whereas the Doctor, Jerry Ryan does a fantastic job of capturing his vocal inflections and his mannerisms. Yeah. And it's, it's very much like convincing that Robert Picardo is like, controlling Seven in that way. Like, it's so convincing. Jerry Ryan is such a good actress. The reports of my decompilation have been greatly exaggerated. Doc? Please state the nature of the medical emergency. <laughs> but no one else reads that as, like, you're walking like a man. Are you really a woman? Like, that conversation never comes up. And, and so I do think that is, it, it, it's a really good point in, in just that our ideas about what makes a man and what makes a woman, like once you actually put those to like an actual test, like do you walk like a man or do you walk like a woman in, in this instance? And like, what are your mannerisms? Um, no one notices them based on just the outer facade that's being presented to them. No one looks at Seven of Nine and the way she's acting and thinks something something's off here. You know, to them it's just like, yep, that's this is this is you. You know, why should I doubt that? So that's generally pretty positive. Um, I think the potentially problematic area is um, a lot of trans people are criticized because they're perceived as leaning into uh, the gender binary in order to pass, right? Mm -hmm. So um, a, a trans woman will be criticized for, you know, having long hair and wearing makeup and um, getting top surgery or whatever. Um, things present as typically female in order to combat their dysphoria, um, but for for example, uh, let's say a butch lesbian or just a, a tomboy, the idea that putting on that feminine stereotype uh, is essential to a trans person's identity is, you know, harmful, they say, to them because it reduces their ability to say, well, I'm a woman even though I conform to none of these stereotypes, I don't have to be any particular way to be a woman. And that's true, right? Like, as we say, the doctor is just being himself mm -hmm. and that's reading as feminine just because it's coming out of Jerry Ryan's mouth and her body. So mm -hmm. I, I can see people in bad faith reading some of this as supporting the position that trans people are harmful to the idea of feminism, especially in that way. I hadn't thought about that very last point. That hits hard and is unfortunate. Yeah. But it's, again, this idea of, like, what what do we think a woman is? What do we think a man is? You know, and we have these ideas that are social constructs that are just reinforced, you know, through community and language and structures, but... Ultimately, everybody can decide how they best want to express themselves, and people should get to decide 
how they identify and like versus us saying there are these outside concepts to which you must conform. There's a couple moments, um, which I don't love, where he's sort of like, ew, a man's kissing me. I'm not gay. Yeah. There's that thing to it, which, ugh. But it's like you're a hologram, <laughs> right? Like, you should not care at all <laughs> about that. Yeah, I, I, I thought the, like, implied heterosexual dynamics in this episode were really fascinating to me. You know, like, so the doctor identifies as male. Let's go with that premise for a second. Um, even though he's a hologram. Like, somehow we have to give holograms gender, too. Okay. Um, so sure. the doctor identifies as a man, looks like seven, and the male captain is attracted to her slash him. And that attraction is based on what? Based on the way she looks or the way she acts which and the way she identifies, which internally is male, you know. But as soon as the captain finds that out, you know, if you remove the photonic part of that element for a second, suddenly he's no longer attracted to the person he used to be attracted to just because of a gender swap. And the same thing happens with... Um, the nurse, you know, she and Seven, she and the doctor, who looks like Seven, have this great, forge this great connection. You know, the doctor is obviously very interested in the nurse, but she, like, she's not picking up on that, or she's not even considering Seven as a potential romantic interest because they're both women. And so not only, not only is, like, the gender binary underpinning the structure of these relationships, but there's also just heteronormativity which is a problem. And at the end of the episode, when the doctor and the nurse are, um, not the nurse, I'm sorry, she's the jack-of-all-trades, engineer, medical doctor, everything, um, but just helping out in sick bay. Um, that relationship, I think, has a different like energetic, emotional twinge to it when the doctor is presenting as the doctor. Like Suddenly, there is that kind of like romantic energy connection between them. And again, just because of a gender swap. And, and so why is that so based on what the person looks like versus what's on the inside, you know? And, and that's what I think the argument is for trans people and for bisexual people. It, it's like the person on the inside is the same regardless of what gender they are. So why would, why would it matter how they're presenting on the outside if what I'm attracted to is on the inside. And that's a very different way of looking at people than I think culturally and societally we're, we've been conditioned to do. Yeah, and I agree. There's there's a lot, and I want to be careful, um, but there's a lot to kind of parse out here because yeah. none of the characters in this episode are actually trans in any way, right? Mm -hmm. They... The doctor, as you say, identifies as a male hologram. Seven, we assume, identifies as a uh, female. You know, Picard, the, the series later, establishes that she's queer. She's at least bisexual. Um, but that's not really explored yet in, in, mm -hmm. in the series. The issue in terms of being attracted was on the inside then. So you can say that with the, uh, the jack-of-all-trades character she is interested in the doctor for who he is. And so the thing that's in the way 
of that relationship developing um, naturally is the fact that Seven's female presenting body is what's between them, mm -hmm. right? Obviously, we're attracted to what we're attracted to physically. There's nothing wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But if, in terms of looking at the trans allegory, if this personality of the male doctor is inside of Jerry Ryan's body, and Jerry Ryan had the option of transitioning to look like the person she is on the inside, that would resolve the dysphoria, right? Yeah. And enable the relationship between um, him and the, the jack-of-all-trades character. Conversely, the male captain of the ship is attracted to Seven of Nine, he thinks, um, and he's attracted to her body, but her personality is the doctor's, so it's only the physical piece of it that is allowing the captain to, to allow himself to feel these this way. Which is interesting because it's like, no, you're falling in love with the doctor, or you're not a love maybe, but you're falling into attraction with a guy who just happens to have boobs. <laughs> they certainly should have leaned into it more in terms, at the end, the doctor does say something kind of um, queer adjacent where it's like, the truth is, aside from a few awkward moments, I enjoyed our time together. There are many women who'd appreciate an attractive man like you. I'm just not one of them. It's a little fraught, but there's, there's some interesting sort of queer overtones to it. Our final look this week takes us to the first season of Star Trek Enterprise. Unexpected was written by Rick Berman and Brian Braga and directed by Mike Vihar. It aired in 2001. The Enterprise is experiencing technological failures, which it turns out are being caused by the close proximity of a cloaked vessel. Archer establishes contact with the vessel and agrees to lend them trip to help repair their systems. The alien ship is significantly more alien than is usual on Trek, requiring hours of decompression just to board it. Uh, Trip develops a friendship with one of the Zerillian engineers. She shows him their holodeck, feeds him gelatinous water, and plays a game with him involving telepathic pebbles. The game in question is actually the Zerillian method of reproduction, meaning Trip is pregnant. He grows extra nipples, becomes hormonal, and begins to house the alien fetus in his body. The crew search for the Zerillian ship again and discover them tailing a Klingon ship now. After some negotiation, Archer is able to broker a truce and have the fetus transferred out of his engineer. So, I have a confession to make, Elliot. Yes? Um, so, as you know, I came to Star Trek late in life, and there are two series that I haven't finished. One is the original series. And the other is Enterprise. So this was actually the very first Enterprise episode that I ever watched. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Enterprise. I'm going to put that out there. Sorry to anyone who is. That's, that's all, it's all Star Trek. It's all good in its way. But um, I think, I hope, even for fans of Enterprise, this is not a shiny example mm -hmm. of, of good television. Mm -hmm. 
or good Star Trek. Uh, yeah, God, what a, what an introduction. Um, so again, like Prophet and Lace, so much bad, so much horrible stereotyping and just character assassination and dubious morals and yeah, uh, again, hard to know where to start, but I guess we should again talk about the issue of consent because it's another really bad uh, example of it here in Star Trek. It's weird how this keeps coming up, Yeah. but um, she calls the alien, uh, calls the thing with the hands and the pebbles um, a game. This is a game we play. Watch. Go ahead. Like, like you would say to like a kid who didn't know any yeah. better, and it's actually the way these people have sex and reproduce. Yeah, there's a creepy undertone to that. Like, you know, if humans were, you know, a human adult told a child, like, "Hey, do you want to play a game?" and it was sexual, like that's a completely dishonest. If you know a human did that to an alien in the same similar way, like that's not a game like yes sex can be joyful and playful but to frame it like that without actually explaining what it is huge problem yeah this is assault right if not just rape yeah very rapey like, ugh, ugh. and the fact that there's no but yeah so that happens and that can be that can be a plot you can have a story about rape but if you're gonna do it you need to actually do it and not just eh I guess that happened onto the comedy. Yeah, like it, to me, to me, it was really unclear when I first watched the episode whether or not that really was a game that accidentally like resulted in Trip getting pregnant. But you know, when she says at the end, I had no idea this could happen with another species. If I'd known, it's like so you knew it was possible in other circumstances like that was when I started to realize like this might have been a slightly more than accidental and actually just neglectful and thoughtless you know yeah god hey Trekno babblers we hope you're enjoying the show we wanted to take a moment to invite you to follow us on social media yeah you can find us on twitter and instagram at Trekno psychopod you can also find us on Facebook at Treknobabble Psychobabble Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments or ideas that you would love uh, for us to cover in our podcast, you can email us at treknopsychopod at gmail.com. And we would love for you to also follow us on YouTube at Treknopsychopod, where you can enjoy our podcasts with all of the stunning visuals that are included. And if you would like to support us on Patreon at Treknobabble Psychobabble Podcast, we would appreciate any support you can offer. Enjoy the show. So in terms of the transness of this story, again, really unfortunate um, because there's obviously not a literal transition happening, but there is this gender swap of a sort in that you have a male character becoming pregnant and then thereby displaying a lot of gendered behavior yeah. that is not typical for him. Yeah, like when he's in the turbo lift and he suddenly cares about, like, what about his child or a small alien? Like, he's trying to, like, baby-proof the ship, yeah. which, like, 
suddenly, <laughs> it's, it's as if he only cares about that now that he's pregnant. Um, so that's that's problematic. <laughs> right. But something that really struck me was kind of like the shame associated with this pregnancy. Like when you know. Oh, from Tapal. Well, from the whole crew, actually. I mean, the Tapal is like the first, like obvious um, example when she she's basically telling him the hospital, like, "Wow, you really couldn't keep it in your pants." And he's like, no, like that, A, that's not what happened. But also just, just how shaming that is, like really, really struck me. Um, but then like the whole yeah. crew, like, you know, he doesn't want people to know. The Klingons laugh when he, they find out he's pregnant. Um, like there's this, the, the, there's this sense of like, oh, a male human was impregnated against his will. And, he, and that's something shameful and to be laughed at. Like, that's really fucked up. Yeah, well, and we see this today, right, where a lot of transphobic people object to the term menstruating people when it comes to um, issues around reproductive rights, especially. They mm -hmm. want to say, well, no, it's women only because they don't want to acknowledge the existence of trans men, who obviously, some of whom can uh, become pregnant. Yeah, and do. There have been a lot of really beautiful and powerful examples of trans men having children, you know, and like what that is like for them and like everything that comes up for them with that decision and with that process. Yeah. And it's just, God, it's like you're dealing with these two, the, the Klingons and the Zerillians, both these alien species, the, the Zerillians. I mean, it's like for them, the norm is that men are pregnant. That is their normative default. Mm -hmm. So are the Klingon? Would the Klingons also laugh at a pregnant Zerillian man? Yeah, it's like it's weird. It's like they know instinctually that Trip feels dysphoric about his pregnancy, and they laugh at him about it. It's just, I mean, you know, they're they're not the the good guys in the episode, but still, it's like this is so childish. <laughs> And I also, I don't understand why he's growing nipples. Like, he has nipples already, right? Yeah, it's just like, where are the mammary glands in his forearm? Like, tell me about that. Please tell, please tell me how that's going to provide nutrients. Yeah, and, well, and also, the, the female engineer who impregnates him has giant boobs. <laughs> but if, like, <laughs> right? Yeah. If, the, if, the, if, the, if the default of the species is that the men grow nipples to only when they're pregnant, I guess, in order to uh, uh, breastfeed the, the infants, then why do any of the females have breasts? Like, what? I don't. It's so stupid. This is totally, like, another episode, but it is amazing how humanoid is a subcategory of species, as if humans are the... Like, we're, we're, like, the baseline from which everything else is altered and judged and understood and like that like somehow that like aliens are somehow like us we're gonna do that episode i think and we're gonna center it around do you remember the episode the chase from tng with the aliens with the the dna yeah. The dna puzzle yeah, I remember that. yeah. Mm -hmm. well we're gonna talk about that one day but i agree that's a, that's a different subject breasts while they have been completely sexualized or a reproductive organ, and um, they are essential for the continuation of the species. When a human embryo is um, in the uterus, it is genderless. 
Um, and then about week six, there's this like wave of testosterone that goes through um, the, the embryo's environment. And if it's XX, nothing happens. But if it's XY, that's when the differences in, in the sex organs take place. But men have nipples because it is so essential for the survival of the species that, you know, evolutionarily, biologically, it was like, we have to make sure everyone has nipples just in case. Because otherwise, like, how are the babies going to eat? <laughs> so, yeah. So if you're going to take that to an alien species and say, well, the women aren't going to be pregnant. There's like, yes, they can have nipples, but they would never have breasts that big. And th this is where what's so frustrating is that potentially this could have been a really good episode if they had handled a lot of things differently in that, okay, so you have a species where the men get pregnant and breastfeed uh, the offspring. Or forearm feed. Don't forget where the nipples are. <laughs> Wrist feed. <laughs> um, but, the, but the women still have these giant breasts and these feminine bodies, sexualized bodies. So what does that mean in terms of like the allegory here? It's like, well, yes, evolutionarily speaking, uh, breasts are a, uh, a, a sex organ or a, you know, they're a, they're a, they're part of the, the species and they're, they're functional, right? They have a function for the, continuation of the species because we fetishize them and they are part of our social interaction as as gendered um humans there there is a, a reason quote unquote why the aliens alien females even though they have no functions might have very sexualized breasts because it is a social function right it's about attractiveness and it's about interaction and it's like even though the men bear children and breastfeed, we still see the women as women because of the way they look, not because of their biological function. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So the, the episode didn't do anything with it. <laughs> um, but in terms of how trans people live, you know, a lot of trans women, for example, get top surgery and trans men get top surgery to have their breasts taken out um, because, not because either trans men or trans women are expecting to change their biological function, mm -hmm. but just because of the way they want to present socially to other people. Like we can acknowledge and be aware of the evolutionary history and function of these things without saying, well, and that's where it ends. No, that, that, is, that is a totally fair point. And thank you for bringing it up. Like, yeah, we, we've all these things which have this historical biological function, you know, we have, made meaning out of it you know we've attached it to social constructs and gender and how we present ourselves and that is that is a really fair point so the depiction of DePaul is in the early seasons of enterprise i know you don't know this yet but it's un it's pretty unfortunate oh. in my opinion and her um her, her shaming of trip is one example here where it's like she's slut shaming him I guess because he she assumes that he like couldn't keep it in his pants as you as yeah. you said um while on this uh, away mission and it's like if you imagine that trip were a woman who had gone on an away mission and then found herself pregnant and the first officer's like 
calling her a slut <laughs> yeah. for this mistake that isn't her fault at all. Yeah. Right? That because she was violated, like, how fucked up would that be? That would be, yeah, that's really fucked up. Yeah, I, I just don't know what they're thinking. And here's, do, do you remember the episode The Child from TNG? Very beginning of season two. Uh, oh, wait, is that with Troy? Here's the thing. So guess who was executive producer at that point in TNG? It wasn't Gene Roddenberry anymore. It was Rick Berman. And Rick Berman, he wrote this episode. He and Brandon Braga wrote this episode. So in The Child, uh, Troy is uh, very similar to Trip. Like this alien comes in and is trying to experience uh, being a humanoid and so impregnates Troy in order to have this life cycle, right? Again, consent issues. She was raped, essentially. Last night, while I slept, something which I can only describe as a presence entered my body. But at the very least in that episode, it was the alien... Like the, it wasn't like the alien lied to her and said it was a game. It just sort of did it. Like it's still not okay, yeah. but it's slightly less bad, I think, than what this it happens in the Enterprise episode. Anyway, after that episode, uh, there was a lot of backlash, deservedly so, against the show for this depiction of Troy as this like unwilling baby incubator. I didn't know that. <laughs> Instead of a, a person. Yeah, so you would think he would have learned his lesson Rick Berman, that is, would have learned the lesson of, like, don't do this, and yet, here we are. Well, he well he made it a man this time. That was what he thought would fix the whole thing. We're essentially dealing with an instance of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. I, I know the episode is playing it for laughs, which happens, unfortunately, a lot in media, but Troy's, or not Troy, uh, Trip is sexually assaulted here, um, and it's funny, funny, because he's a guy. Well, yeah, that that has some real-world similarities and dark uh, and problems to it. You know, like male victims of sexual assault come forward even less often than than women do, and you know, most women don't come forward either. And so there's this huge stigma against being a male victim of sexual assault which is so unfortunate because it happens to everybody, you know, because it's not about sexual assault is about power. You know, it's not about the person or their gender or anything. It's just one person having power over another and abusing that power. And for men to feel like they're less of a man, if that happens to them is, is tragic, you know, and, and to have that, kind of portrayed in this episode even you know even though it is played for like jokes and laughs i think it's just it's sad you know it doesn't it doesn't help anyone Explain what is the difference between sex and gender? Sex is is normally understood to be the biological sexual organs that someone has. So if you have uh, a uterus, you're a female. If you have a penis, you're considered male. And so that that's sex. Gender is 
more of a, it, it's a social construct and it's an identity that is a way of how do you understand yourself to be? How do you identify yourself? What is your experience of yourself? And how does that fit into these socially constructed ideas of what, you know, in, in the binary, what a man and a woman is? So which, which do you feel you are, regardless of what your body looks like? You know, because historically, women have uteruses, men have penises. Like, that's the way we've been trying to, like, force that concept to work for um, a couple centuries now. But that's not true you know like they can be different things you can biologically have female reproductive organs and identify as a man trans people as well as non-binary people as well as intersex people have existed throughout human history as far as we can tell yeah um along with uh, people queer people of, of, all, of all stripes it's just a question of to what extent a particular society at a particular time allows people to express themselves and that's that's true for everybody right yeah absolutely the like the the western i the white western idea of what a man and a woman is really started in like the victorian era and also has Mm. also has roots in colonialism you know it was like this idea that the like the best way to be a woman was to not work and to bear children, you know, and to like, you know, all these like terrible stereotypes we have about women, that was lauded as like more civilized. And anyone who didn't adhere to that framework was somehow considered primitive. Like it it has all these colonial undertones, which are so fucked up. Well, I mean, then I guess it's no wonder that our our society right now is struggling with the issue of trans identity so much because that's kind of everything that we're struggling with socially now is trying to undo the mess that European colonialism caused. I mean, that, and that's the, uh, as you point out, that that's why feminism is necessary. That's why queer theory is necessary. That's why um, critical is necessary that like finding ways to re-examine our history and shed off all of the preconceptions from the colonial era that's kind of what we're trying to trying to do and it's it's a struggle this week's episode is about negative examples from trek on trans identity so it's it has been uh speaking of struggles right it's been a struggle to watch these episodes for the most part like, there are good things here and there scattered around. I feel like I'm playing devil's advocate a lot today, but I also want to give Star Trek a, a little bit of a leeway here because when these episodes were being filmed and created, like, the, that was just the social soup that, the, that this content was created in. You know, like, so, socially, there was so much less understanding about these issues than we have today in 2022. So... I just also want to acknowledge that these episodes are a reflection of the time and society in which they were created. So it's not like Star Trek was getting it so wrong and everyone else at the time had a different idea. Like, this is just a reflection Mm -hmm. of what the world was like then. And I'm glad that there's been progressive progress in that way. But it's also, like, looking back at these episodes, like, not only were they just 
bad episodes to begin with, but they have aged so poorly. And I think it's really important to look at why and like what are the what are the harmful things that have been done that we can try to avoid doing in the future. I agree. And I I I appreciate that you do that and obviously I love Star Trek despite its flaws and its checkered history at times. At the same time there are so leaving for a moment the harmful depictions of trans allegories aside in for example Prophet and Lace you still have these really reductive um, gender binary stereotypes that even for the time 1996 uh, are not okay right are are regressive for the time let alone now so of course it ages badly but it's like I I, I don't know if I can be quite as forgiving um, of some of those things Um, I do think the Voyager episode is the least bad in that way because it sort of gives a little bit of leeway to some queerness um, in allowing the doctor to not be quite so like terrified of the captain hitting on it and acknowledging that, you know, I'm, I, I could be into this under other circumstances. That's at least slightly uh, fluid. Well, I, I think in all these episodes, especially in Prophet and Lace and especially in Unexpected, there's, there are these ideas about a woman is this. She acts like th- she acts like this, looks like this, behaves this way. Like this is what a woman is. And there's like the parallel. Like this is what a man is. You know, like these these external examples. And then, for the person, uh, it, it it matters less what their actual experience of themselves is and how they identify themselves and how they want to express themselves. Like that's where we should be aiming for, you know, listening to the people and saying, what's your experience? How do you identify? Like, you get to tell me who you are versus mm. I tell you who you are based on how much you match these ideas of what a man and a woman is that I have and that I've gotten from society. Like, do you see the difference about, like, who who has the power to name in, in that situation, in that dynamic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that within some trans spaces there is the hope that society will change enough in time that it won't be necessary to transition as drastically as some trans people choose to do um, in order to prevent those kinds of social forces from creating that uh, dysphoria Mm -hmm. right that we'll get to the point eventually where it doesn't matter what you look like or how you present or where your organs are or any of that. It's just, you say, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm non-binary, whatever. And people accept it without struggle. Yeah. I, I'd like to believe we're, we're on our way there. Like the, the arc of justice is slow. Isn't that the Martin Luther King quote? Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I want to believe that we're we're making our way there, but it is slower than it should be and requires all of us to to do our part. There's there's a lot of damage to undo, like you were saying earlier, and we all we all have to take our shovel and get rid of the shit that's in front of us. 
One of the other problematic, uh, of, of many problematic things in these episodes in terms of the associations that are made with trans people, I don't know if you noticed this, I certainly did, but um, there's a lot of sexual assault in these episodes. And unfortunately, all of them are played for comedy. You've got Quark um, harassing his employee, um, and then you've got, conversely, Quark as Lumba being harassed by uh, Nilva, the Sluggo Cola guy. Mm-hmm. You've got um, Seven, her body, and the doctor, his self, being assaulted by the captain. I mean, it's, as they say, it's not as severe, but it's still, it's like an un, unconsented to kiss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got Trip being impregnated without his knowledge or consent. By the alien engineer and what's pretty horrible is that in our cultural uh, lexicon we oftentimes uh, attribute trans identity to sexual aggression in that people will especially trans women are actually just men who are putting on the guise of femininity in order to assault cis women. Like that's, mm-hmm. you think about something like Silence of the Lambs, right? Choosing to live your life authentically, especially when it runs counter to uh, a dominant culture, is never the easy choice, you know? And so I think if people are ch- making the choice to live authentically, I think that should be lauded and applauded and, it, and not assume that they're doing it for nefarious reasons. That's a hard road to climb, you know, if you're if you're doing it just to get access to women. Like like it does it doesn't make sense. The argument falls apart. It and uh, yes, and it's also another example of projection because statistically trans people are one of the highest risk groups of being assaulted, of being victims of sexual abuse and assault. And so to portray them in the cultural zeitgeist as the perpetrators is like classic projection, right? Yeah, if I was a toxic man in this environment, that's what I would do. So therefore trans women who are I think are actually men must also be doing what I think men would do in that situation. Like, no. Exactly. It's it's showing your ass. It's saying like, well, if I if I were considered a woman and could, I don't know, go to women's bathrooms, I would rape them. That's <laughs> what you're saying. That's what you're saying when you accuse uh, trans women of of lying, yeah. right? And unfortunately, that association, it's not that grotesque in in the Star Trek episodes we're talking about, but it's it's playing with those expectations in a, in a, in a harmful way. Um, at the end of the day, yeah. Well, the, the underpinning structures in all these episodes are a gender binary. You know, you're either a man or a woman. Even if you're a trans man or woman, you're, that's still a binary. It really excludes everyone who's non-binary or gender fluid. You know, like we're we're coming to understand gender as a spectrum. Like there's as many points on that that spectrum as there are people. So there's not just these two extremes of like masculine and feminine, and then these outer constructs of like what masculine and feminine are. And ultimately, like, we, everyone has masculine and feminine energies inside of them. We're not just one or the other. If we, if we 
try to only be masculine or try to only be feminine, then it becomes this like inflated caricature. Like to toxic masculinity has a lot of things that cr that make up that psychological profile and and that behavior, but one of them is a repression of someone's innate femininity. You know, like mm. it, like the less you allow yourself to accept the feminine energies inside you, the the more you're gonna squeeze the masculine side until it like is this kind of grotesque like overinflated bubble. Like that's the like that's the image I have at least. And and so it's 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 working for this balance of like how do you how do you balance these these opposites within you that are within everybody uh, versus just trying to deny one and elevate the other which then creates this imbalance that's probably the reason why of the three episodes um body and soul from voyager holds up the best because at least there's a sense that the doctor and seven sharing her body at different points learn something from each other so if we say that seven is carrying this feminine energy and the doctor's carrying this masculine energy which isn't necessarily true as we talked about mm -hmm. but if we say that that's at least in the structure of the episode then they come away from it feeling as though they can get something from the other and there's mm -hmm. a there's something of a balance to be found between their their different energies in addition to that um the, those energies existing within us, as you say, we, we all make choices about how we perform those energies, yeah. right? We all make choices about what clothes we're going to wear, how we're going to decorate our bodies, how we're going to walk, cross our legs, speak, who's going to walk in through a door first. Like there's, there's all these very little and, and in the, at the end of the day, totally trivial things on their own. They are trivial, I think, in the grand scheme of things, but they all add up to a sense of self as it relates to other people. talking about these issues especially when they're problematically portrayed in such a beloved franchise that is normally considered progressive but this was a hard this was a hard episode it was hard to watch these it was hard to watch the episodes like as we prepared for this and it's just it's also hard to talk about this stuff like i i, I find myself feeling humble and unsure i i agree this was <laughs> the problem with doing uh problematic episodes all together is that we had to watch them <laughs> consecutively and it's like if you if we didn't know any better it'd be like wow this what a terrible franchise right. i mean i i love this franchise and i was still like cringing i was like i like would pause a lot just to give myself a break uh i think it's important for us to say um that you know neither of us is trans and we are doing our best to talk about the subject respectfully and in, 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 in an informed way, but one should always seek out uh, the voices of people whose communities are being represented uh, for themselves. So you should look for trans voices. There are a number of, lots of trans uh, Star Trek fans um, and non-binary Star Trek fans and uh, the whole spectrum of people. So Star Trek attracts, attracts the rainbow and so that's 
something I hope people who have enjoyed this episode will take the time to do. Um, thankfully, we're going to continue this topic next week and the following week, and next week's episodes should be a lot easier to talk about because they're, I think, better. They've aged well yeah. <laughs> um, by comparison, so hopefully that'll make for a more pleasant viewing experience and a more pleasant uh, conversation overall. But despite the difficulty, Elizabeth, I feel like I've learned a lot, as always, from you and um, have enjoyed talking about this. Likewise, I, I enjoy geeking out with you about our favorite franchise, and, and similarly, like it's good to become aware of these darker parts of our history and our society and learn how to do better. So thanks for helping me do that. Thank you. I will see you next week. Thank you.